morning, everybody. You open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18, and as you turn there, uh, the songs the worship teams have been singing has all pointed us to what the good news is that we celebrate during this time. Um, the good news of Jesus Christ, indeed, he is the good news. And uh, I just want to encourage you, especially over this next month, that uh, people are more open towards spiritual conversations. They're a little more comfortable talking about Christ and Christmas. And I hope that you and I will take advantage of that. We have had a couple weeks ago a young lady in our congregation who gave her life to Jesus Christ. And um, I just want you to be open and sensitive towards others who were like her, who were ready, ready to make a decision for Christ. And um, please take advantage of that because his name is above all names. And uh, his is the only hope of the world that he offers. And so I just hope that you'll take advantage of that. And thank you, worship team, for leading us towards those truths. We began a journey with our friend Abraham. He's a friend now. Uh, we can relate to him. We've been able to watch him fall and turn, if we were honest, look at our own life and looked at the times we've stumbled. And we've looked at him exercise great faith. And, and like that, I think we've probably all ascribed towards that as well. And this morning, we want to continue to look at his life and his journey and learn from it. And uh, we're going to find that in Genesis chapter 18. But before we, we do anything, we really need God's Spirit to teach us. So let's pray. Our Father, we, we come before you this morning grateful. Grateful for the many ways you've blessed us. The many ways you've showered your blessings and favor upon us. And some of those ways are as close as the person next to us. Our children, our spouse, our friends. The body of Christ. But Lord, we also forget the blessing of your word. Your God-breathed word to us. Your word, Lord, that wants to light our way, that protects us, provides freedom. And Lord, there's something of, of your life in them that spiritually nourishes us. We pray that would happen this morning. Lord, that we receive your word into our lives and receive all that you want to do by your spirit this morning. And we ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Sometimes, um, maybe you've been in a conversation that kind of went a different direction than you thought, or there were things at play in the conversation you were unaware of, and, and that kind of happened uh, about a week ago. Don't tell my brothers and sisters I shared this story. They would just kill me. And, uh, and they said, hey, let me know when you get back from your trip. So I sent them a text, hey, I'm back. Uh, we had a great time. How are you doing? And always checking on how mom's doing. Well, my one sister apparently hadn't had that great of a week. Glad you had a great time, Matt. Um, actually, this last week, it wasn't so much fun. I had a colonoscopy and some other things. Okay. Well, my other siblings thought that would be fun to join into this conversation. So they piped their little uh, input and their little thoughts in there. And all of a sudden, after some interaction, there's this one, my sister Linda's phone, that said, who is this? We're like, well, Linda, it's us. And... I'm not Linda. 
like, how did she get in our group text? How, I mean, how do you enter it? Well, apparently, unbeknownst to us, Linda, my sister, dropped her cell phone. Service, and someone else has her number. Someone else who's in the middle of a very interesting conversation, wondering about a whole bunch of things right now, who these crazy people are. And uh, it didn't quite go the way we thought, and uh, we kind of felt a little foolish um, in our own way. And, and just some conversations are unusual. And uh, especially when we're not quite sure who we're having this conversation with. Well, that's kind of what's going on here. We have a conversation that's taking place in Genesis 18, and Abraham and, and those involved aren't quite sure who they're having this conversation with, and it becomes very interesting and very intense the more the chapter goes on. Well, let's look, first of all, at this unexpected visit. Let's look at the first eight verses. Now, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, bowed himself to the earth, and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread, and you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on, since you have visited your servant. And they said, So do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf, gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. And he took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared, placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Well, this is an interesting visit. Let's follow this now. Let's, let's learn from Abraham and his journey here. He's hanging out under the oaks of Mamre. Many believe Mamre is actually just a friend of Abraham, and so it's identified the place he's hanging out is by these oaks of a friend who owns it. He had built an altar there before. And so a few days earlier now, weeks at the most, the Lord had appeared to Abraham, Abraham and announced the, the fulfillment and that it was coming of this promise, of this promised child, and, and the, that he would be a blessing to all generations. And uh, he'd also given Abraham a new name. It was Abram, given Abraham a new name. So it's fresh off that encounter that this takes place. And all of a sudden, he's sitting there by the tent. It's hot, so you can imagine he's sitting there. He wants some kind of breeze, whatever breeze he can get. And, and all of a sudden, these guys appear before him, three guys. Boom, there they are. And so the suddenness grabs me. And probably startled him a little bit. And uh, it, the text says he bowed before them. And we need to understand that is and still is an ancient equivalent of what we'd probably say a Western handshake. Back then they bowed before one another. We shake hands. It's kind of a greeting. Um, it's a respectful greeting. And that's, but he recognized something different about these visitors. And we're going to see this as the text unfolds a little bit more. And he says in verse 3 through 5, in essence, please do the honor of letting me make you comfortable. Kind of a neat thought. In other words, he showed great hospitality. The Bible has a lot to say about hospitality, by the way. And as I looked at that, if I was to just look through the lens of, of what kind of example did Abraham set for offering hospitality, I, I think there's six marks here, if, if you, you want to know. One is initiative. He saw and he invited. I mean, that's hospitality. You see somebody and you invite them. He honored them. He bowed low before them. He, he respected them. Looked them in the eye, shook their hand, that type of thing. 
he, there's a desire. He says, let me get you something to eat. I desire to help you and to serve you. There was sacrifice. He chose a choice calf. There was speed. He hurried to serve him. He didn't leave him hanging. And then attentiveness. While they ate, he stood at attention and kind of watched. And so, I mean, there's six marks, kind of a good pattern for us on how to show hospitality to other people. Now, I want you to notice something, verse 6 and 7, and, and sometimes little things grab me, and this is one of them. He hurried to the tent to Sarah and said, quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Now, when I see three measures, I'm not sure how much that is. It, it becomes the equivalent of about eight gallons of fine flour. Now, I did some research with some experts in baking, Julie and my wife, Cindy. They assure me this is a lot of bread. Eight gallons of flour would make a lot of bread. Cindy and I were trying to figure out, and it's got to be over 40 loaves of bread. Now, eaters are really hungry people. Or Sarah's a lot like your grandma when you go eat, right? And she makes enough for 600 people. We don't know, but these people, they got a lot of bread. She made a lot of bread for them, but she's not done making bread, man. This is quite a meal. Um, there's a choice calf involved. So you got homemade bread, cheese curds, we read about, milk. I'm sure there's butter. And then there's some beef. That's a pretty good meal. I mean, if you're going to offer somebody a meal, pretty good pattern right there. And, uh, and so they take care of them. They, they offer them a great meal. And it would be used, interesting enough, because 560 years later, Leviticus 1 and Leviticus 2 tells us that these same two things, fine flour and a choice calf, would be offered in worship as an offering to God. Abraham got a jump on what happened in Leviticus 1 and 2 as he brought this offering to these visitors. Now, verse 8 and 9, they start to talk. Verse 9. Let's read through verse 13. They said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, behold, in a tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Sarah, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. And Sarah was past childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I become old, shall I have pleasure in my Lord being old also? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Verse 14, Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Now, as we follow this, you notice there's a, there's a switch from plural to singular, and it's important distinction. Verse 8 and 9, you read they, and you read them. And then in verse 10, you read the singular, and he said. You're starting to get some clues about who these visitors are. Now, I, as I read verse 9, and I'm sure Abraham thought this, first of all, how do these visitors know I have a wife? A, how do they know I have a wife named Sarah? Especially since she's not been known as Sarah. She's been known as Sarai. God told me privately her name would be Sarah. Already his antenna have got to be going, whoa, wait a minute. Who are these guys? They know far more than a normal visitor should. And so already Abraham's got a clue, and this text kind of takes us through this a little bit. Kind of wonder if a chill started to run down his spine a little bit. He's like, man, who are these guys? How do they know these things? 
They ask, where's Sarah? And he's like, well, she's in a tent, first of all. And, and he doesn't say anything more. Just, she's in a tent. Kind of wondering, I'm sure, why, why would you want to know? And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. Behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. God had told Abraham that already. He told Abraham that in private. And here come these visitors. They seem to know this. And so Abraham is, again, as I looked at this narrator, subtly and gradually reveals clues about these visitors. First, they appear at random. just happened upon this camp. Secondly, they demonstrate this intimate knowledge shared only between Abraham and God. And then verse 13, then he said, here's the singular part of it. And this is the part we need to kind of pay attention to a little bit as it shifts gears towards us. I'm sorry, verse 10 says that. I will surely return to you at this time next year. Now Sarah's listening to this, and she's wondering what's going on. I don't, we don't know what she's thinking, whether she knows much about this visitor or if she's even contemplating what maybe Abraham is. But we know that this man was none other than God himself appearing in a human form. Some theologians, actually most, believe this is a theophany or God the Son appearing before he came to earth as we celebrate in Christmas. In the Old Testament, God may assume human form. He allows himself to be seen in such form as human beings. And indeed, when God does appear in a form at all, the human form is the characteristic of one to assume, that he assumes. Again, this, is the one, this seems to be the one theophany in Abraham's journey where he's with somebody else. Um, and so we're not entirely sure how that all plays out. But this is distinctly the spotlight zooms in on this one visitor, which we're going to see more of um, as we go on through not only chapter 18, but chapter 19. The narrator in verse 11 reminds us that they're old. It's the idea of these are elderly people, past childbearing. And Sarah's response, verse 12, is really, I, I guess as you think about it, probably be more of a bemused reflection. What she's really doing is she's probably saying to herself, yeah, right. She overhears this. And in the tent, she's like, sure, yeah, like that's going to happen. That type of thing. So that's kind of where she's at in this thing. Now, it's interesting because the tables turn because she has overheard the anonymous visitor talking to her husband. Now the visitor overhears Sarah talking to herself. And so the overhearing starts to change a little bit. And her speaker is identified, obviously, in this case, of one who can overhear what she was thinking, it gives us another clue that God's involved in this situation. Explains how he knew Sarah's name. Also how he hears her quite distinctly, even though she's laughing inwardly. Now this whole account, I think, takes us up to verse 14, which is a very important point in this thing. A question's asked. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Now think about that for a moment. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? A possible situation, Abraham and Sarah. God's been telling them this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. Abraham had trouble swallowing it. Finally got a hold of it, believed it. Now Sarah's laughing inwardly about it. The question comes because really it's the question on the table. Is anything too difficult for God? Now don't leave that with Abraham and Sarah. I want you to think about your situation. Your life. The numbers not add up when you open the checkbook? Are you 
in a relationship, maybe your marriage, engaged, that it just seems impossible for you to get past this hurdle. Maybe your job is hanging in the balance. It's like it, it's just impossible to please the supervisor. It's impossible for this situation to change. Let me ask you a question. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? That's the question. Is anything impossible for God? What's really, to me, even more interesting is the other time this statement is used. A heavenly messenger appeared to a young unmarried virgin girl in Nazareth to announce that she would bear a son who would be the promised Messiah. And after explaining that she would conceive miraculously by the Holy Spirit's power, Mary was told, nothing is impossible with God. Isn't that interesting? Leads right into the Christmas story. I mean, it's, it's the question, is anything too difficult for God? And we get the answer in the Christmas narrative. No, nothing is too difficult for God. But it's the question you need to ask in your situation. What do you really think? Deep down, do you really think that everything is possible with God, that, that he can do anything? Do you really believe that? And if not, that's a faith issue. That's an issue that you're going to have to walk through with God. It's a question designed to shift this couple's obsession beyond their own hopeless situation and their own limited resources to the limitless resources of God. Now, verse 15, Sarah denies it. Now, again, this person says, you laughed. She laughed inwardly, so he knew something, but now she denies it. She says, no, I didn't laugh. Why did she say that? Because she was afraid. The, the question I have is, what was she afraid of? I, potentially, she's afraid because somebody knew her thoughts. That's scary. Somebody knew she laughed, even when she laughed inwardly. Maybe she's afraid of, to be honest, giving birth at an elderly age. We don't know if that's starting to sink in. But fear moves people to do some strange things. And she does hear what many of us do when we're caught in sin. We lie. We lie to cover up the first sin, and so we commit a second sin. She lies. I, I didn't laugh. And he says, well, wait a minute. Actually, you did laugh. And notice it moves right on. I mean, the, the encounter's done. And the suddenness, again, of moving right on. He said, no, you did not laugh. Then the men rise up from there. They're done with that conversation. And this takes a shift now of what's going to take place. And so let's follow along, verse 16 to 33. Then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. The Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there, and went toward Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. 
And Abraham came near and said, Wilt thou indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will thou indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from thee to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from thee, for shall the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. Abraham answered and said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. Wilt thou destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the forty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he, being Abraham, said, Now behold, I ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the twenty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed, and Abraham returned to his place. There's this grievous revelation that takes place to Abraham. As he departs to the east, this journey is about 20 miles to the lush Jordan River Valley where the cities Sodom and Gomorrah lay. Now, they present the Lord in, in a unique way. There's a literary technique used called anthropomorphism. And it's an it's important word. It portrays God, an infinite God who's an indescribable being in human terms to help us understand him better. That's why we find him in a unique way here. In this case, the narrator allows us to see God's motivation for including Abraham in his plans to address the evil of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's why we read in verse 16, or verse 17, the Lord said, we need to ask, who's he talking to? Well, we're led, in, led on by the narrator of God's thoughts. We kind of get a peek in what God is thinking. In this case, again, the narrator allows us to see God's motivation for including Abraham. The Lord said, in effect, I've chosen Abraham, I've chosen his descendants to be my human representatives before all the people of the world. And to equip him for this job, I need to let him in on a few things. I need to give him, I guess if you could use a phrase, insider's knowledge on what I'm doing and why. I need to give him knowledge of why I'm dealing with Sodom and Gomorrah. It will be my first human lesson to him as my human assistant. And so we get to read on what happens. Now, based on his decision to include Abraham in his plans, God engaged Abraham in a dialogue. You see, God knew from the beginning what he would do. God's omniscient. He sees all things in detail. He hears all things very clearly, just like he heard Sarah's thoughts. He's sovereign. He didn't need Abraham's permission to do anything. He didn't need Abraham's permission to pronounce judgment on these evil cities. God dialogued with Abraham so he would see the reasonableness of what God was doing. Now, verse 20 through 21, we again note the anthropomorphism. The Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry. Now, as I read this, I'm reminded every word in Scripture is important. It's God-breathed. 
It's inerrant. There's two words that jump out. One is outcry. It's a Hebrew term. It means to cry out in a term of distress, a time of distress. The word is almost used exclusively in reference to a cry from a disturbed heart in some kind of need of help. The cry is not really, in this case, a summons as much as it is an expression of a felt need. And the context here suggests that the cry heard by God comes, another word, against these evil cities, not from them. Because sin and evil always have victims, so it's reasonable to include that this outcry comes from those being harmed by Sodom and Gomorrah. Perhaps they're inside the city. Perhaps they're outside. Their utter depravity, utter, utter, utter depravity of these two cities was widely known. So much so that other polytheistic people who offered their children in sacrifice and did deplorable things actually looked at Sodom and Gomorrah and said, those people are really bad. That's how wicked and depraved Sodom and Gomorrah were. Now, we, when you hear Sodom and Gomorrah, we probably, if I asked you if you ever heard of Sodom and Gomorrah, we'd all raise our hands, and probably none of us would say, oh, it's a nice city, I'd love to settle down there. None of us would think that because of their reputation. But what we think of the reputation is nothing compared to the reputation and its reality of what people thought about it. This was a horrible place. And so there were great victims that came. This groanings of deep sorrow and the anguished shrieks of terror reached the ears of God nonetheless. And this text says a whole lot about the character of God. His knowledge his justice, and certainly his mercy. Verse 22 is kind of a neat thought. The men turned away from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Now, as you see those words, standing before the Lord, the phrase is most often used in conjunction with a prophet who stood before the Lord. In a sense, Abraham becomes the pattern of intercessor that the prophets were that we read about in the prophetic books. He becomes the precursor, if you may, of the prophets who interceded before God on behalf of a people. Verse 23, And Abraham came near. He said, Will thou indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Good question. Since God already knew the facts, he already knew what he was going to do, why did he allow Abraham to even intercede? Maybe you've thought the same thing. If God already knows what's going to happen, why pray? Right? You ever ask that if you're honest? I mean, does it really matter? And as we go through this, I think there's some answers that are seen here. One, he allowed Abraham to intercede in order to reveal his mercy. I think God allows you and I to intercede so we can see his mercy play itself out. He also did so so we would know, and Abraham would know, that God takes no pleasure in destroying the wicked. It's in times of prayer we sense the heartbeat of God that God has no delight in judgment of the wicked. But it's all for his glory and honor. But he's not willing that anyone perish, Scripture tells us. Also, Abraham's prayer shows us the power righteous people can have. You see, God responds in prayer. Somehow, in some way, in God's economy of things, our prayers matter. God's moved by them. I'm not sure how it all plays out, but that's pretty cool, that God would actually hear us 
and he'd respond to the prayers of his people. It shows us the value of interceding for others. This teaches us that indifference is not an option for the child of God. And you and I, when we see the wickedness in our world, it's pretty easy to put something on Facebook and rip somebody down. It's pretty easy to badmouth all these horrible events and, and our candidates and all those things. But God says, no, what I want you as my people to do is intercede. I want you to care enough about the wickedness and what you see to drive you to your knees. That's what I want my people to do. And that's what this account teaches us, and when we go to prayer, that's what we learn. Now, it's important to note, God, Abraham doesn't question God's right to judge. That's not his question. Verse 23 is his question, his concern. Abraham came near, he said, Will thou indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? God, I know that you're right to judge. You're completely just, but I got a question. What about the righteous? When you have your, your big broom sweep judgment, are the righteous going to get swept up in it? And God, is that, I mean, is that going to happen? Is that really, I don't know, fair? Are you overlooking them? And then we get this unique dialogue of, of Abraham trying to barter a little bit or trying to figure things out of, of whether there's enough righteous for him to, to not act. Now remember, God values righteousness. It's his moral perfection without sin. In God's eyes, nobody's righteous. So when we read verse 24, and then we read verse 26, which says, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. When we read that, by God's definition of righteousness, nobody living in Sodom and Gomorrah in that valley or anywhere was righteous. Abraham was counted righteous, credited righteousness because of faith. Was it because he was righteous? Because God made him righteous. And we know certainly in Christ we're made righteous because left to our own without Christ, we're hell-deserving sinners who deserve only judgment. That's why we need Christ so desperately. But while judgment's not up for debate, Abraham calls, turns to God and calls on divine mercy, which, by the way, Abraham knew a whole lot about. But the difference between Abraham's concept of righteousness and God's becomes clearer as he continues to bargain for divine mercy. This conversation would be funny if there wasn't so much serious consequences. And so Abraham whittles the number down to ten, but I don't think he dares go any lower. I think he stops at ten and says, well, I better stop here. I don't want to push this thing, this envelope. But he gives more than lip service. He intercedes on behalf of these people. And we're told God departs, and he turns his full attention on Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to see more of that encounter in Genesis 19. But make no mistake, your prayers matter. Interceding for people matters. Who are you passionately seeking God on behalf of? Are you persevering in prayer for somebody? Keep at it. I've heard a lot of stories of people who've come to faith in their 40s and 50s and found out, traced back, that mom and dad or a grandma had been praying for them for years. They persevered. God heard every prayer. And God answered. Your prayers matter. Learn from Abraham. And so let's all learn from Abraham because what this text reveals, kind of neat, is Abraham is seen in three different ways, and I think each way gives us an application. First of all, Abraham is seen as a host. 
we see him host these visitors. The application for you and I is let's seek to focus more on serving others in our daily life. Let's learn. You know, Hebrews tells us something interesting. He says, in offering hospitality, some of you have offered hospitality, he says, to angels, and you didn't even know it. Think about that for a minute. I mean, now you're going back going, okay, who are the angels? Um, we don't know. But we do know the model here is to offer hospitality. It's a very good model for us. And Hebrews warns us, keep doing it, because there might be some angels you offered hospitality to, just like Abraham did. And so seek to focus more on serving others in your daily life. Abraham gave himself fully to looking past himself to ministering to these guests. Might we follow Abraham the host? We also see Abraham the instructor. Because Abraham is told here to instruct his descendants. For I have chosen him, verse 19, in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. And so we see Abraham is called to be an instructor. And what's he to instruct? I think we go back to verse 14. Nothing is too difficult for God. Be assured that nothing is too difficult for God. Believe it and teach it. Pray it. Nothing is too difficult for God. You can be assured of that. Stand in this truth, especially in your impossible situation. So we see Abraham as a host. We can respond to that by seeking to focus more on serving others in our daily life. We see Abraham as an instructor, so we can be assured nothing's too difficult for God. Then we see Abraham as an intercessor. And so what do we do with that? We stay sensitive and passionate in prayer. As you and I talk to God, he begins to soften our hearts more and more. I'm convinced hard-hearted people don't pray. Because if they prayed, God would soften their heart as they pray. They begin to see people not as enemies, but people who need Christ. They would become more sensitive to the struggles others face. Instead of judging, they try to come alongside and minister to them. Abraham models for us as an intercessor to stay sensitive and passionate in prayer. Remember, Abraham knew everything about these people, how wicked they were. I could read this, and I, again, I, I probably ashamed to say, I don't, that, if that was me, <laughs> um, I, would, I would try to remind God how bad they were. And it's Abraham's heart isn't that. He's sensitive. He's already here, actually, beginning, we're beginning to see him to become a blessing to all the nations, right here as he intercedes for these people. Prayer will soften your heart. Prayer keeps us in tune with God's perspective. We see him as a host, Abraham. We see him as an instructor, and we see him as an intercessor. And might God help us to achieve those very things in our life as well. Tonight, you'll sit around probably dinner together as a family. Maybe you should have a conversation about this. As you and I continue to interact with Scripture, might God continue to bring those realities about in our life. Let's pray. Lord, there's so much in Abraham's life this morning we can see to emulate. We've seen a lot of his mistakes and 
We've scratched our head as some of his decisions, that's for sure. But now I step back and admire this man. Admire what you've done in his life and how you changed him. And Lord, I look at my life and realize how far from this example I am. But I also recognize, as I hope my brothers and sisters do as well, that we have your spirit within us who can help us grow as hosts and instructors and intercessors. And I would pray even this week, God, you would give us opportunities to do that, to live out these truths, to walk in these realities. And God, in so doing, it is our great prayer that you, our God, would be pleased, that you, our God, would be honored. And as we seek you and as we follow you, we would be able to, as we come back here next week, look back and say we love you more than we did this week. Because we were in tune with you, because we communed with you, and because we walked with you. Holy Spirit, please do that in our lives. It's your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.